Please open your Bibles to Luke 16, verse 18. The passage may be found in your Pew Bibles on page 876. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is a translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be teaching from. Hear now what the Spirit says to the church. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. So, preaching through books of the Bible brings you to subjects or topics that uh, might not adequately uh, be addressed otherwise. And so here we have in this one verse, um, very straightforward, but also very confusing, and frankly, I think uh, also uh, potentially uh, very emotional. And so I would ask... um, as I move through the sermon, because I cannot say everything at once, um, please uh, try try to be patient and and uh, and hear hear me out as I work through uh, this passage here in this sermon. And and I'm more than happy to take your questions. Um, because I know that I, this sermon will likely only raise more questions than it answers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord our God, as we consider this, um, this one verse in Scripture, this teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ about divorce and remarriage, help us to understand it within the context. Help us to understand it um, for our... Um, own day and age, even for our own lives. Uh, Give me your help as I seek to uh, proclaim your word faithfully. Uh, I can do it only with your help, and so I plead with you, God. Pour out your spirit upon me and the hearers who are gathered around your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 15, Uh, Abram was very anxious as he spoke to God. He was old, he was childless, he feared that he would have no offspring to be his heir. And so God made him a solemn promise, a vow, if you will, that his offspring would be more numerous than Abram could possibly imagine. In verse 5, God told Abram, look toward heaven. And number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. God also told Abram that he would possess the land of Canaan. But Abram questioned God, saying, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So to settle Abram's anxious nerves, God made a covenant with Abram. He said, Take a young cow... Take a goat, take a ram, also turtle dove and a and a um, a, a pigeon, but the the young cow, the goat, the ram. God said to cut these three animals in half and arrange them um, half of those 
the one half of the animals on one side, the other half of the animals on the other side, so that um, uh, Abram formed a little aisle um, for, um, for God to pass through. And so after the sun went down, God passed through using the imagery of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Cutting the animals in half was a common form of making a covenant in the ancient Near East. In fact, um, the symbolism was a way of declaring that the one who was, who was passing through this aisle of blood um, passing through these, this aisle made with these animals that had been cut in half uh, was declaring that the one passing through would be cut in half, just like these animals, if they broke the covenant. Uh, when you read of people making uh, a covenant in the Old Testament, it literally says that they cut a covenant because that's what they did. They cut these animals in half to make the, the parties of the covenant pass through this isle of blood to say, may I be killed if I break this covenant. So making or coven- cutting a covenant was a very solemn affair. It was considered inviolable or unbreakable. Uh, and marriage covenants are equally solemn and are to be considered equally unbreakable. Just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Mandy will remember this. Her best friend and, and uh, her betrothed were getting married, and we were there, and, and uh, a giant thunderstorm had, had come, and it was just uh, thundering and lightning and raining. And the, the pastor said, What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And lightning hit the steeple of the church. I mean, the whole place shook. Uh, The alarms and cars up and down the street were going off. And the pastor kind of looked up. (laughs) And uh, God made a point. What God has joined together, let not man separate. In Malachi 2.16, God says that a man covers his garment with violence and is faithless if he divorces his wife. When one enters into into Christian marriage, each person vows before God to their betrothed to faithfully love and cherish the other no matter what. For better or for worse, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, No matter what, as long as they both shall live. Jesus makes this point very strongly in our passage this morning. So you see, uh, Jeremy read it. I'll read it one more time. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. 
And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Where does this come from? <laughs> you know, you, you might be saying, I don't remember Jesus talking about marriage in the, the passage last week. Well, if you don't remember Jesus talking about marriage uh, in the passage last week, you, if you don't remember me preaching about marriage in the passage last week, congratulations, you've got a good memory. In fact, just look with me real quickly, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And you go, this is kind of jarring. Why does marriage come up all of a sudden? Uh, Well, what was happening was the Pharisees... Remember, they were mocking Jesus because he said, you cannot love God and money. And the Pharisees are thinking, we found a way to love God and money. The Pharisees were nullifying the word of God by their legalistic uh, interpretations. They thought that they had found a way to thread the needle in such a way that they could indeed love God because they were the most religiously devout people in um, Judea, they were the leaders of the synagogue, but they were also among the wealthiest of all the citizens. For Jesus say you can't love money and love God. You know, and they mocked him. And so they, they thought that they could. That's why they're, they thought Jesus and what he was saying about uh, the mutual contradiction about love of God and love of money, uh, they thought that was impossible. Likewise, they had found a way through their legalistic finagling to justify divorcing their wives. That's what's happening. Uh, We don't have the, the context laid out for us, but that's what's happening. That's the reason Jesus um, supposedly, out of the blue, brings up uh, marriage. Uh, and here's the way the Pharisees justified uh, divorcing their wives. They would quote Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, and it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand. And so, It says, if they find some indecency in her, and then they decide, well, what does indecency mean? And so they did a lot of writing about this. The scholars have unearthed all their writings, and we have it in in, uh, their commentaries. They interpreted this verse to mean that if the wife cooked a meal that her husband found to be indecent, I'm not kidding, this is what They said, if they found the meal, just one meal to be indecent, he could divorce her. 
Talk about legalistic finagling. Talk about nullifying the word of God and finding ways around the clear teaching of God. The word for indecent is actually used in the previous chapter of Deuteronomy and it's used of excrement. In other words, the indecency was something heinous. It was, it was, it was adultery. And, um, and the Pharisees cleverly thought that they had found a way around the divorce laws. They wanted to, the, to divorce their, their wife, find some way to show her to be uh, indecent in their eyes. So do you see how this fits the context? Jesus is not giving a comprehensive teaching on marriage and divorce, but rather he is addressing the Pharisees and their dishonesty in the way that they were using the Scriptures. They were allowing their morally uh, wicked desires to determine how they were interpreting the Bible. And so they found a way to practically justify anything that they wanted to do. You know, many people today don't take the time or effort to twist the scriptures into a pretzel in order to justify their morally wicked desires. But it does appear to me that even Bible-believing people uh, will fail to read the Bible in order that they can claim ignorance uh, over their moral failings. I think I, I find this to us especially be true regarding sexual relations outside the marriage relationship. You know, everybody's doing it. Chastity and singleness, well, that's just old-fashioned. It feels so right. We're in love, and we're going to get married anyway one day, right? You know, and all these little finaglings to get around what God's Word says so clearly. These and many other excuses do not uh, justify sexual promiscuity. In fact, it's uh, helpful to read uh, from time to time and remember uh, what God's Word says. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, or thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is not an exhaustive list. I think these happen to be practices that were most prominent in the city of Corinth because it was a commerce city. And so Paul gives this list. Uh, the city of Ephesus was also uh, a major commerce hub, plus they had the, um, the uh, false worship there uh, that included uh, sexual immorality in the false worship. And so in Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, he essentially says the same thing. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure 
or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath comes, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So if you are practicing selective obedience, justifying your wicked desires and actions, you may be sure of this. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And Paul is talking about here people who are unrepentant. Christians struggle, certainly. But he's talking about unrepentance here. He says God's wrath will come upon all the sons of disobedience. It's the same principle of selective obedience that drives many divorces. You know, it can't really be wrong. So many people are getting divorces these days. God wants me to be happy. He can't expect me to live with this person any longer. In my first church, there was a woman in the church, went to the senior pastor. I need to divorce my husband. God wants me to divorce my husband. God wants me to be happy. He said, no, no grounds. She went to all the elders Finally, after working her way through the elders, she went down a rung, and she came to me. I gave her the same answer, and um, she was determined to divorce her husband and make sure that she was justified while she did it. Our text in verse 18 does not give us many details about divorce and remarriage. Jesus' points. Jesus's point is to address the Pharisees' selective obedience. In Matthew 19, however, Jesus gives a fuller discussion, and we'll look at it in a few minutes. Uh, because it comes up here, however, I feel compelled to lay out a few principles about um, divorce and remarriage. Uh, if you want more information, uh, Kevin DeYoung preached a helpful sermon on this subject. Uh, our denomination also commissioned a, a year-long study committee to write a position paper on divorce and remarriage. It was adopted by our denomination in 1992. I keep it in my counseling files and have referred to it often. I have found it to be very helpful, very wise, very pastoral. And you can find that on our uh, denominational website. If you go to the administration page, go to the historical page, and then you look for position papers, and it's there among the position papers for our denomination. You can go on the Internet. You can find many books, many papers written on the Internet. Um, from my brief survey, a lot of these papers have an axe to grind, uh, and let me say from the onset that there are so many unique situations and scenarios that simply do not lend themselves to easy answers. Uh, there are as many scenarios as there are couples in the world. And um, the Bible gives us these principles. And as we look at these principles, as we stay true to these principles, uh, we have... Um, what we need in terms of uh, the many uh, various and difficult situations that, uh, that people 
uh, find themselves in. In this church, we take marriage and the marriage covenant very seriously. Uh, This is one reason why I'm glad that this passage has come up. So I can tell you and just make sure we are recalibrated um, every year, every generation, that we take the marriage, biblical marriage and the marriage covenant very seriously here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Uh, The session takes the marriage covenant very seriously here at Westminster Church. the, the session has worked with several couples over the years behind the scenes. Uh, for privacy reasons, I'm not going to speak about it, except to say how impressed I have been with the wisdom of the men on the session as we have prayerfully met with uh, couples over uh, the years. Seven quick uh, principles that uh, I want to mention in regard to marriage and divorce. First, marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman, and it is God's intention for marriage to last a lifetime. It's true that Moses allowed for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, but it was a concession to human sin. But in Matthew 19, Jesus takes us back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world. And there's two things happening in Matthew 19. The... um, the Pharisees are trying to, uh, to, to figure out how they can get out of marriage, how they can divorce and still be justified. And Jesus is, say, is putting the emphasis on staying married and being faithful to the married covenant. So I'm going to turn to Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9 real quick, and I'll read it rather quickly. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read uh, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are not no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce because of your wives. I'm sorry, allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Um, In verse 9, Jesus gives only one reason for divorce. We'll look at others uh, or another after after this, but uh, here he gives this one biblical reason for sexual immorality. The word here is pornea. and is from the word that we get uh, pornography. Uh, and in the, the Ephesians passage that I read, it said not only sexual immorality, but also impurity. And so uh, it would appear that Jesus is saying that even viewing pornography might be grounds for divorce. In fact, the fact that pornography is so prevalent does not excuse your culpability before God. It is marital unfaithfulness. 
I want to say that as clearly as I can because our culture is like a giant flood heading in this direction. The current is heading in this direction. And God is calling you to be sexually moral, to be sexually pure. He is calling you to not only stand against the tide, but to swim against it. And by His grace, He will enable you to do so. Then Jesus says that if you divorce your spouse with other than biblical grounds, you are committing adultery if you get remarried. Because even if you are remarried, you're sleeping with someone other than the person who should be your spouse, your husband or your wife. So that's the first principle. The second principle is that divorce is not always sinful. Sin likely uh, was likely at play that in leading to the divorce, but that does not mean that every divorce is sinful. And again, you might read on the Internet that every divorce is, is, uh, is sinful, um, and uh, I don't think that that is the case. In fact, over my 26 years of ministry, I've seen many instances where a spouse has so trampled all over the marriage vows that the session has advised the other person that the best course of action is divorce because the marriage vows were no longer left. Um, the third principle is that divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. I've seen many marriages where there was sexual infidelity and the spouse who was cheated upon fought for the marriage and instead of giving up. And the marriage not only survived, but grew stronger. The fourth principle is that divorce is permitted, but not required on the grounds of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. And we get this from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, in regards to desertion. It says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, the brother or sister is free to remarry. Paul says that if the unbelieving spouse leaves the marriage, the believing spouse is free to divorce that person and to remarry. But it's not required, um, but divorce is permitted. What constitutes desertion? Well, in the PCA study paper on divorce and remarriage, it states, under extreme circumstances, a session following the book of church order may properly judge that such a desertion has occurred even though the, the deserting spouse is still physically present in the home. And I've witnessed several cases where a spouse will abuse the marriage covenant in every way except for sexual immorality. And after many, many, many meetings with session, and it appears that there is unrepentant sin and uh, formal discipline leading towards excommunication um, is the next step. The spouse um, who was abusing the marriage covenant uh, leaves the church and... Uh, and leaves the marriage when it becomes clear to them that formal discipline is, uh, is headed their way. There are instances where a 
the spouse is strung out on drugs, is gambling away all their worldly possessions, or where there is abuse, and the session must step in and um, protect the innocent spouse. There was a situation in our previous church where um, the husband was stealing from the wife and stealing from the business, and we we were ready to lock him up in jail, frankly. Um, and even though the the spouse does not leave the 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 home, the person's life because of the extremity of the abuse, um, that is it it becomes tantamount to desertion. But of course, this does not should not open the floodgate to any and every excuse to leave a marriage. Um, if you are in a difficult situation, uh, come and, and speak to one of the session members. Come and speak to myself. I have seen these men in action. I have seen the wisdom and godliness and, and prayerful concern um, that they um, can care for you as um, as you go through uh, difficulties. The fifth principle is that when the divorce was not biblically permissible um, and subsequent marriage to someone other than the original spouse, um, that results in, in adultery, as Jesus said here in our passage. If you have remarried illegitimately and you find yourself under the, 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 the teaching of this passage that um, you've committed adultery, I would also stress, do not add sin upon sin by leaving your, your current marriage. And I'll address this a little bit more in the seventh point, but if you need counsel on this, please come see me. Please talk to one of the elders. Let's work through it from the standpoint of the Scriptures. Sixth principle, one sentence, is that in situations where the divorce was permissible, remarriage is also permissible. And then the seventh principle is that uh, improperly and remarried Christians should stay as they are. In other words, don't get a divorce, even if you have entered into um, a, uh, an illegitimate marriage. Uh, but repent and be forgiven of your past sins and make whatever amends are necessary. God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness is available to all who repent and flee to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Illegitimate remarriage is not the unpardonable sin. Run to Christ. Run to his cross for God's grace. Ask God for forgiveness. Also seek the forgiveness of your ex-spouse if there is something that you need to seek forgiveness for. Uh, if you had kids from that uh, previous marriage, go to them. Seek their forgiveness. To the spouse's in-laws and whoever else you might have hurt by breaking the marriage vows. Marriage, when you take those vows, you are taking them, you are making them before God and to your spouse. It's a solemn thing. But we live in a broken, sinful world. 
love your spouse. Do what is helpful toward building that spiritual oneness. Take walks with your spouse. Read books together with your spouse. Read the Bible together with your spouse. Pray with your spouse. Build that intimacy. You have, it says that you are one flesh, and you see these couples, and I could list couples, I could name couples here in our congregation. They just kind of look like each other because they have so built that intimacy that they have, they know each other's looks and they have taken on each other's expressions. And they just fit hand in glove. But it takes work. And it takes a lot of grace. God's grace is sufficient. He's given us a good thing in marriage. But marriage is hard work. You're taking two sinners and yoking them together. But God's grace can cause you in your marriage to, to survive and thrive as you give your life, your marriage, to the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, uh, this is such a difficult subject. Um, and is one that is often, well, it's overlooked in the world and often overlooked in the church. Oh, God, help us to be faithful as a as the body of Christ and as the leaders here at uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church to never overlook marriage but uh, or divorce, but uh, to hold your word in highest esteem and uh, live according to it by your grace. Lord, be with those whose heart is hurting. Be with those who live with past regret. Be with those who hurt for their spouse who um, who was unfaithful to you. Lord, um, I pray for your grace and your mercies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.